I'm Nurse Jessica Seitz, along with Nurse Erica. We're Nurses Uncorked, the podcast that takes nursing facts with nursing comedy and makes a little cocktail out of it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Nurses Uncorked. Today we have um, Nurse Erica, as usual, (laughs) and... God, I'm in a giddy mood today. And Nurse Jessica Seitz, your host of Nurses Uncorked. Um, Today we have a special guest on. Her name is Leah Helmbrecht, and she is here with us to talk about her job as a forensic nurse examiner. Um, So if you have ever thought about the field of forensic nursing, or if you're just thinking about in general, maybe finding out ideas about um, different types of nursing, this is one in particular that we're going to dive into. Um, I do have to preface this podcast by saying that we have to put a trigger warning out there because of the content of um, the material um, and just the topic in general of what we will be talking about. And some of those things do cover domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. So at this point, if that is something that you do not want to listen to, um, or if that's something you're ultra sensitive to, now would be the time to not follow uh, along with the podcast. Um, if you are going to tune in, um, we're going to dive right into it with Leah and um, also known as Off the Clock Nurse. Um, but before we do that, we're going to get drunk. And <laughs> right in the middle of the day. Because we are um, nurses okay, on not court. Drunk. Yeah, we're going to let Nurse Erica do the cocktail of the week. <laughs> Okay, so I have a super simple one today, but it was a request. Uh, so one of our first podcasts, I said that my favorite kind of wine is Moscato. I, I don't know much about wine. I just know that I like sweet wine and I love Moscato. And one of my followers, who's one of my subscribers, sent me pictures of this Moscato and said, have you tried this? I said, no. And she said, you have to try this one on the podcast. So I bought it and I haven't tried it yet. I've been saving it. It's Stella Rose Moscato Diasti. I'm probably not even saying that right. It's the original, the <laughs> original. It's, it's a fancy Remember um, when screw I top. said rose instead of rosé? Do you remember that? <laughs> Erica? Yeah. I, I was like, it's a type of rose wine. And you're like, do you mean rosé? I was like, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> so who knows if you're saying it right? Who cares? Who knows? But I'm excited because it's Moscato, and I know it's going to be good. But it was a special request, so I thought I'll definitely honor that because I love Moscato. Anyway, it wasn't even a very pricey one. So cheers. Cheers, ladies. Cheers. Cheers. So, Leah, thank you for joining us today. We're excited to have you. you. Welcome to Nurses on Court. I'm excited to be here. I don't have alcohol, but I have post-night shift coffee. So in the middle of the day is my (laughs) drink of choice. Let's talk about that coffee cup you got there. What? what I know. Yeah. This is actually, uh, I'm in Denver, and this is a local um, pottery artist. She just, I actually met her in jury duty. (laughs) So um, her thing is Paz Designs, P-A-Z Designs, um, on Instagram. And she makes all of her own stuff. So very really cool. nice. very love- unique. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've known Leah for so. a while now. We've Ooh. gotten to be friends. We talk uh over social media and about different things going on in the nursing world. And uh I'm so excited to have you here today and talk about a very 
unique and very important and I think um, not very well understood specialty within nursing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in nursing and how you became a SANE nurse? Yeah, I have been a nurse for 14 and a half years, which is wild. It feels like a really long time, but then I'm like, oh, I've got like 30 more years left before I can retire. So it doesn't really seem that long. Um, So I have done everything from bedside nursing to operating room nursing. I was a travel nurse for almost eight years um, in the OR. And then I decided to go permanent uh, here in Denver and leave nursing um, because I was feeling that burnout. And Mm -hmm. I actually became a travel nurse recruiter. That's when I first heard about SANE nursing because one of my nurses was an ER nurse. um, And on her resume, she actually had SANE on there. So I I had to look it up because I didn't even know what that was. It wasn't even anything that I had ever heard before. It's not something that was talked about when I was in nursing school. Um, And so that's the first time I heard about it. Then COVID hit and, you know, everything became a shit show. Um, And so I decided uh, to leave recruiting and go back to nursing um, because I was also feeling like I have this nursing license. I should probably use it um, to help people right now. Um, And I got a job at the nurse advice line. So I was still working remote and we were getting all of these calls in from domestic violence patients um, or um, people who were sexually assaulted and they were too scared to go to the ER because of COVID. And honestly, the only thing I knew about sexual assault or domestic violence was what I learned off of Law & Order SVU. So very (laughs) inaccurate information. And I, uh, you know, and and like we do have protocols, like they do have guidelines that we can go down. But a lot of the questions they were asking me, it wasn't stated there in the guidelines. And so I was just stating things that like, I don't know, someone was like, well, am I allowed to eat? Or do I have to bring my urine with me? Or, you know, anything like that. And I was giving them inaccurate information, like you shouldn't eat, you shouldn't drink, you should hold on to your pee or bring it in a jar or something like that. And it's, it's all very, that was all very inaccurate information. So I actually found a, um, a free program in Denver through the Colorado Sane Safe program uh, through University of Colorado Hospital. And I mean, we were on lockdown and nothing else to do anyway. So I ended up taking that because it was free. It's not like I was going to lose anything. Um, And it was really interesting. Um, You know, I learned so much that I had just assumed before. And from there, I decided to go further with it. They have a free in-class, like a clinical down in Colorado Springs. So it's like a two-day clinical. So I went down and I finished the whole program. And it was just kind of wild because I jumped onto my hospital's job board. And right there, like the first posting was for a sane job. And wow. um And so then I reached out to the manager and I was like, hey, I I finished the same program. Um, Is this position still open? It's only PRN because I was working full time. So I was like, that's perfect. That's four shifts a month just on call. I can definitely do that. And 
within like the next week I started. And this was back in February, 2021. So I've been doing this for almost three years um, coming up next February. And yeah, I just absolutely love it. I think everything just kind of fell into place. Um, and even though I've been doing so many different types of nursing, um, you know, for the last 14 years, I feel like this is the first nursing position where I, I honestly feel like I'm making a difference. Um, not that you don't in other nursing fields, but I have so much autonomy with it. And I really get that time to sit with my patients and really talk to them. Um, with the time that I do have. And it's just something, I don't know, I just, I feel very fulfilled um, with this, with this nursing, um, yeah, this nursing position. So yeah, yeah. I really love it. Does, yeah, does there's, SANE there's definitely stand a need for sexual, for sexual assault nurse examiner, I'm assuming, SANE? Yeah. So there's, we call ourselves either a forensic nurse examiner or a sexual assault nurse examiner. Okay. And that's because not all of our patients were sexually assaulted. So we see patients who experienced, had just experienced um, intimate partner violence, strangulation, or uh, sexual assault or human sex trafficking. So for our patients that were strangled by an intimate partner, but they weren't sexually assaulted, um, I'll go in and say, hi, I'm the forensic nurse examiner. But for patients who were sexually assaulted, I'll go in and say, I'm the sexual assault nurse examiner. So they're kind of in interchangeable. Um, and even if it is someone who is sexually assaulted, I can still say I'm the forensic nurse examiner. So it's kind of like an umbrella term. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I assumed that it was uh, only for sexual assault. And, the, you know, there could be other things in addition, but I assumed for you to be involved, it would have to be uh, a sexual assault. So that's interesting. I didn't know that. And you touched on something. Uh, we never hear about this in nursing school. I know I didn't. Did you, Jessica, ever hear about this in nursing school? No, never. In fact, um, when I went to your Instagram bio, to look at it and it said sane nurse i'm like oh thank god she hasn't lost her marbles yet like that's good to know <laughs> like i literally when i read it i thought she was saying she's still sane i was like good for her good for leah like that's how clueless no i've never i've never heard of that before um but it's good to know i, I mean it you know, should be you do see sane you obviously but that it does actually stand mm -hmm. for something. So no, never heard of it before though. I think yeah, that should I be in nursing feel school. Like I'm losing my marbles. <laughs> it should be, and especially yeah, just because like there's even so one much day to, it. to shadow would be valuable. It would be tough to shadow because you just never know when someone's going to be True. assaulted. True. Um, so it's that is kind of tough to shadow, but um, at least being taught about the position um, that this is something that, um, you know, it's an option. And um, yeah, I think also 
something that we don't get taught about that I think is really important is the neurobiology of trauma. And Mm -hmm. because that's not just trauma with, um, with people who were sexually assaulted or assaulted in any way, but it, it can affect anyone that experienced trauma. And what do we see in, in healthcare? It's just like people who have experienced trauma. And so the neurobiology of trauma can actually dictate the way somebody is acting after a trauma. And it's really interesting because especially when people come in after an assault, like a domestic violence or sexual assault, people tend to make their own assumptions on whether they think this person is lying or not or telling the truth or not based off of their um, the way that they're acting. And there's actually no right or wrong way to act after a trauma. Mm-hmm. So with whenever a trauma occurs, like a series of hormones actually gets released in your body and they can be um, like a cortisol, like a steroid, um, oxytocin or a natural, natural opioid. And so based off of how much of those hormones gets released in any person's body, and it's going to be different for anyone, it's going to dictate what their affect is like. Right. And so some patients will be that fight or flight, you know, they're just like running, you know, like in this huge state of like freaking out and running back and forth or they're shaking or uncontrollable crying. You have some patients that are just like, I'm really tired, or they're just like sitting there staring off into the abyss, uh, not really talking to you, not responding to you, um, or some are just like, I mean, I feel okay. Like, and you're just kind of like joking around, laughing with them. And it seems like nothing. It hasn't hit them yet. And then exactly. Well, and I mean, that could be the oxytocin, you Mm. know, flowing through their body. So it's this, and then you can have patients that will have waves of emotions. So you'll have someone who's maybe like staring into space and then all of a sudden they're just screaming and pacing back and forth and crying hysterically. And then they're like, I just want to go to sleep. And then they get really tired and then they're like totally fine. And that's what we call trauma brain. And so there's really no right or wrong way. And when somebody thinks that, oh, this person's acting ridiculous or they're like, they're being so, um, I don't know, just inappropriate, you know, with the way that they're, they're treating, they're talking to me, you know, as a healthcare provider um, or healthcare worker, it really has nothing to do with you. It's this person literally has no control over how they're reacting right now because all of these hormones are just like pumping these, these stress hormones are pumping through their body. Um, and with that, even with, within like, um, sexual assault, um, we'll get a lot of victim blaming, um, when police come by and they're like, well, why didn't you fight back? Why did you, for, for those who just really? like laid there and didn't do anything, didn't say anything. Oh, all the time. Oh, That's and, um, when there's a big, when there's something extremely fearful that is occurring, and they've shown it in, I believe, any, well, there's different studies. So anywhere from 12 to 50% of sexual assault victims have stated that they experienced something called 
tonic immobility or rape-induced paralysis, um, mm-hmm. either some portion, if not the entire time that they're being assaulted. And it's literally what it sounds like. They're paralyzed. So they're, they can't move. They can't talk. They're literally just laying there, um, not able to do anything. And and there's a lot of either self-blame of why didn't I fight back? Why didn't I do anything? And and then there's a lot of victim blaming of why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you scream or try and get away? Um, and so that's a lot of times I have to explain to patients because it's so confusing to them on on why they didn't do that. Now, all of these hormones that gets released during a trauma can also be damaging to the memory parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so it's so interesting to me that for police officers, after they go through any traumatic event, like they have to pull their gun out, um, they actually get three full sleep cycles, typically, um, three days before they're interviewed after any traumatic event. But these um, victims that come in, our patients, they have to tell us right away what happened. Tell us exactly what happened in exact order. But those hormones are actually most damaging to the memory parts of the brain, um, especially the hippocampus that um, regulates encoding, which is putting all of those memories in accurate order. So the best recall is going to be three full sleep cycles after any traumatic event. Um, And so then when they come forward, they tell us their experience of what happened. And then now time has passed and they're starting to remember better. Now people say, well, you're changing your story. Mm. You must be lying. And, And so this is the exact reason why sex assault in particular is the number one most underreported crime here in the United States is because we live in a society where we victim blame, shame, and don't believe. Leah, I'm learning right. so much. I, I didn't know a lot of what you just said. This is really valuable information that we need to get out there. And I know you you try all the time. You're always on your different social media platforms trying to educate the public about this. It's it's so important. I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't know as a nurse a lot of what you just said, but it makes so much sense. So will they yeah, often... I, I think it's like... A... I was just going to say, do they often then interview like the um, the patient that was assaulted initially, but then will re-question them three days later to see, like, is that the course of how it's done, like, routinely, or? So, typically, they'll get picked up by, uh, if they're deciding to report, it'll be a patrol officer that comes in and talks to them first. And then later on, um, maybe the next day or day after that, um, if the, well, it, I guess it depends on where you are and what your county um, rules are. but the um if the officer the patrol officer feels like it's a valid um validated um they will send it off to uh, a detective which is okay. a higher level um so like like the law and order svu people um but it's interesting because a lot of patrol officers get very minimal education on on this, I actually talked to a lieutenant um, 
I, I had filed a complaint on a patrol officer um, <laughs> after ER nurses actually came to me on a patient about a patient and saying how how rude this officer was to this victim who clearly had all of these injuries to them. And I went in and I started talking with the lieutenant and he actually had no idea about the neurobiology of trauma. He had no idea about any of this. And I'm like, you're a lieutenant, plus yeah. you're about to retire. So how have you made it through your entire career and, yeah. and not known about this? So I actually volunteered. I said, I will, you know, I'm, I'd be happy to come in and talk with the officers and, or talk to even like in um, the training, like the, the, what is it, police school um, about, about this. And when I reached out, I was met with, well, you know, they just have to learn so much and this would just be too much more oh, for them to, to learn. That's disappointing. And it, it's so, yeah, I know I was just taken back because especially for domestic violence, uh, when police have to report to these, to these calls, um, especially when it comes to strangulation. Uh, well, one, strangulation is the last escalation prior to homicide, statistically. Mm. So statistically, the next time the abuser gets mad at the victim, they're going to murder them. Um, domestic violence are the number one most dangerous calls for police officers. Um, people who shoot cops typically have some kind of history with domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And then 54% of mass shooters have some kind of history with domestic violence. So even that um, mass shooter that was just in Maine, if you look, um, they kept talk, trying to talk about like ment his mental health and how he was hearing voices and all this. And we want to believe that it, a lot of it has to do with mental health. But if you look at a majority of the mass shootings, it all starts with somebody losing power and control over some situation or being rejected by a woman or being um, losing their job. And so they go into the workplace and shoot up the job or even hospitals, you know, they, they lost some kind of power over, you know, healthcare for their loved one. And so now they're going to take it out on the doctor. Um, and so it all has to do, a lot of people want to think that it has to do with mental health, but a lot of it has to do with power and control. And when they start to feel like they're losing that power and control, they'll do anything to get it back, even if it means um, losing their own life or or harming their own life um, some way, in some way. That and that's sense. just like, that's like a true narcissist. Yeah. 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 What what is the youngest patient you've ever had to uh, take care of as a sane nurse? Yeah, in my hospital we take care of all ages. So there are some hospitals that won't do pediatrics. There are some like like Children's Hospital will do all of the peds, and then UCH will do um, adults. Um, but at my hospital, we take care of all ages. So um, the youngest I've had is four years old. And the oldest I've had, I think, is like 87. Oh, wow. And people wow. think that people want to think that domestic violence and sexual assault all has to do with either sex or anger management issues. But it actually has it. Both of them have to do with power and control over another person. And that's why we also will see. I mean, you've seen in like like um 
like either doctors, even in the healthcare field, there's been stories of doctors or nurses that have been sexually assaulting patients, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, um, recently there was a couple that one that recent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's all about power and control. It's not necessarily necessarily like, oh, that's an attractive person that I want to, you know, get right. with. It's like, I can, I can get into this field and be uh, surrounded by very vulnerable people and, and do whatever I want. And that's why it's really important, even in healthcare, that we are keeping our eyes open, that we are listening to patients when they come forward, um, and that we start by believing them when they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, sex trafficking is something that I am very passionate about. Uh, I saw living in Vegas, we have a very high rate of uh, human sex trafficking. And I saw firsthand for years, my colleagues just kind of burying their head in the sand, thinking that because I was in the pediatric world, it wasn't something that we had to deal with. And time and time again, I saw patients with red flags that I thought there could very well be some, some trafficking going on with this, you know, it's, it's, um, a very kind of odd father figure that brings them in, uh, and, you know, they won't ever leave them alone. And I'm like, that that's their pimp. Like they're, they're being trafficked, you know, and no one ever wants to look into it. And I have, uh, absolutely stood my ground, prevented discharges until we finally get social work in there. We do, you know, we have to get creative to get them apart from the quote unquote father. Right. You know, it's terrible how prevalent it is and how I think a lot of healthcare workers, I don't want to generalize, but a lot just don't see it. They don't see the signs or they don't want to. I'm not sure which. But I'm sure you come across that it's one of the, all too often. I was going to say, it's one of those things that it seems like people don't want to believe that that actually happens or that it actually exists. Not even just healthcare workers, but I mean, in general, like, you know, if you watch videos or anything, people talking about um, human sex trafficking, people are like, that doesn't really happen. You know, like, that's just something in the movies or, but it it really does. But it's like one of those subjects that's so like taboo and people think that it's, or it's or it's so far fetched it very minimally happens, you know. But I think it's a lot it's a lot more prevalent than people people realize or 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 know about, you know. So for sure, like that's crazy Absolutely. that people wouldn't take that into account. Yeah, and I think um, even there's even that um, there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding who are the traffickers and that you're going to get snatched off the streets and that's how people get into trafficking. But actually 91% of those that are in trafficking are trafficked by someone they actually know. Um, And for child trafficking, child sex trafficking, 42% are actually trafficked by their own parents. So when we talk about, um, yeah, yeah. I can't even. Uh, um, oh my gosh. We, yeah. When we do talk about it and um, just knowing the signs of that when they do come in, it's really important that just like you were saying, Erica, if someone does come in, they're not in, they're in sex trafficking, 
they're not going to be alone. They're going to be with a pimp. They might right. even be with another person that's being trafficked. But a lot of it is like brainwashing mm -hmm. because they've been in it for so long and it becomes normalized um, to them. Like they just think that's, they don't even know what trafficking is. So if you're going to separate them, which is what we, if you have any, if you have any doubts that this person is, you know, being trafficked, try and separate them from the person that they're right. with but don't just say hey are you in human trafficking because right. a lot of no, them you have don't to be even creative. know what that is yeah mm -hmm. and so you have to talk to them about like what trafficking actually is or like hey um you know are you do you feel like you're being told to do something that you don't want to do or forced to do something that you don't want to do? And if they say yes, because a lot of, especially with kids, they'll be like, yeah, I had to clean my room and I didn't want to. <laughs> right. So if they say yes, then, then you keep going forward and you go forward with open-ended questions. And if it's something that you're not comfortable with as a healthcare person, I mean, go find the social worker or, you know, somebody else that is, uh, kind of trained to talk about these things, which is why I think it's so important to have a forensic nurse in the hospital. Um, unfortunately, we don't really bring in revenue, so that's why we're not in every hospital, um, and we're just not seen as like you know necessary by administration um, right. because typically they would just if they didn't have us, then they would just have like the residents um, or the doctors do the. Um, do the exams. But I think it's really important because we get so much extra training in trauma-informed care, in the neurobiology of trauma, in being able to spot um, people who are in abusive relationships or um, in human trafficking. And so it's really nice when I'm there um, you know, for my other job, I actually work as a discharge nurse. And sometimes I'll have nurses, you know, I'll be, I'll just be there for my other job. And they'll be like, they know what I do. And they're like, Hey, this is kind of like weird to me. Do you mind? I know you, this isn't your patient. Like, do you mind just kind of checking this out? And, and I'm absolutely, you know, I, I, no problem. I'll totally go in and talk to them. So, um, but also, when you are talking to someone and asking them if they're in, you know, you're concerned they're in domestic violence or, or sex trafficking, a lot of the times they're not going to just come straight out and tell you. And it's out of either fear, um, you know, they've been told that if they do, you know, try and leave that they're going to be killed or someone they know is going to be killed. Um, but also, especially for for both of those, they rely on their abuser or their trafficker for literally everything in their life, like food, clothing, shelter, um, yeah. you know, literally everything. And so it's not as easy, especially in those cir circumstances to be like, well, I mean, if the abuse is so bad, then why don't you just leave? You know, it's like, well, where do you want them to go? The number one cause of homelessness in women and children in the United States is domestic violence. So we tell people to leave these situations where that's like the most dangerous time is because that abuser is starting to lose their power and control over that person when they decide to leave. That's when we see a lot of the homicides. Um, we, our domestic violence shelters are constantly full, constantly full nowhere to go. And so 
it's like you're telling these people who will literally leave now they can stay up to what like 30 days in a shelter in a domestic violence shelter and they have no no money no mode of transportation some of them don't even have a phone they have not had a job in how long um, maybe they have kids and our judicial system is not very kind to these patients either to these victims either um, because even in our judicial system they believe that um, if there is no even if there's proof of, of violence towards from one parent to the other that it's still important for a kid to have both of their parents. Mm. And so now you're leaving this domestic violence situation, but your kid is having joint custody with your abuser. And so how do you, you know, a lot of patients, a lot of victims would rather stay in this abusive relationship in order to make sure that their child is being safe um, right. than leave. And now you have to pass this kid back to your abuser and hope that they're not abusing them. So our system is very broken. And I would say that's like the hardest part of my job. A lot of people think like, oh, that must be so hard to hear all these really terrible things that are done to these patients. But it's not like in healthcare, we see and hear a lot of really traumatic things. And we deal with it. Like that's part of what we do. Right. My frustration is the system and how we constantly fail them over and over again. I feel like we are putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. And then when they come back, we then shame them and say, well, why didn't you take care of it? What do you mean you bled through that? You know, like I patched you up, but we didn't actually fix the problem. Right. We didn't stop the bleeding. Well, speaking of the problem of bleeding, we're going to get into the problem of the week. I told you you didn't know when it was going to happen, but um, she said the word problem, and it just reminded me of the problem of the week. The week. Erica, what kind of problem <laughs> we got this week? Yeah, so for the past <laughs> week and a half or so, I have gotten several messages. And so instead of reading one, I'm just going to kind of bunch them all together. They are all from nurses from various specialties asking me if it's okay, if it's safe for uh, management there is forcing nurses on the unit to mix their own meds instead of pharmacy. Typically, it's on a night shift. Uh, I've heard it from NICU, I've heard from ICU, I've heard from MedSurge, literally all over the place and suddenly. So while I've heard of this a few times in the past, and you know, we're, we're not talking about like like a bag to vial Zosin or something, you know, like we're talking about actually mixing their own meds. They're doing pharmacy's job. Uh, and so, no, it, it's not safe. Now, does that mean that nurses can't do it? Uh, not necessarily. You know, obviously we know how to dose and measure and all of that and concentrations, but should we be doing it? This is this is pharmacy's specialty, of course, uh, and they have they have hoods that they work under and much more aseptic and sterile environments to mix their meds. Um, we don't have that on a unit, you know. And we less have distractions, a, less distractions around them for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I know this is a thing that nurses used to do back in the day, um, and it was very common. And I do hear from a lot of older nurses that are like, what's the big deal? I, I did that for years. 
because nursing today is not what nursing was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's just not. Not only do we not have the time and typically the tools at our disposal to be doing this, um, evidence-based research shows us that it's, it's not safe. We shouldn't be the ones doing this. It's definitely equates to increased med errors. And let's be honest, the reason they're doing this is to save money as usual, at the expense of patient safety and nurses' licenses, right? They're trying to get away with having to not pay a pharmacist on a night shift. That's it. That's the bottom line, why they're doing it. Yeah, I mean, I remember I used to mix up, you know, mag sulfate for our mag patients. We mixed up our own Pitocin bags. Like, that's how, you know, we were trained. And then all of a sudden, one day, they were like, no, we're mixing them up for you. I was like, what? What did this have? Which was great, you know? I mean, because honestly, it's it's a lot of steps to it. And you've got to be really careful. I mean, you make one little mess up or you stop talking to somebody and you're like, oh, crap, did I draw up? Was that four or six gram load? What did I just shoot in? You know what I'm saying? Like, you never know. Right. Like, it, it, it is an easy mistake that, that could be made. So... So what do nurses do yeah. though? That's why I always like to, I always like to push you for an answer, Erica. Can they say, no, I will not mix it. <laughs> or, or they're, uh, you know, as always not. power and they're numbers. Get in so trouble. if one person, if one person is going to refuse, they're probably going to make an example out of them. But if the whole unit collectively or the majority say, no, we're not going to do this, then they have more power. But if it were me, I would be doing my evidence-based research. I would go to ISMP, Institute Safe Medication Practices. Um, they're a great resource. And I would be able to back it up with, you know, quantifiable research that shows an increase in medication errors and adverse events when nurses are forced to mix their own meds instead of pharmacy. Present it that way. Okay. So just, you got to keep fighting it, I guess, you know, or... I mean, if you're one of those as with everything that, in nursing, yeah, yeah, document it, document right. Yeah. Put you always say put something oh, yeah. in writing, write an email, write an email yeah, that you absolutely. told your nurse I mean, manager this isn't chain. safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you this doesn't surprise do, me. It doesn't um, surprise me at all. No. You could probably even do like an assignment despite objection for that because think about how much more time consuming that is. You know, especially if you're like, say, ICU med surge, where you either have so many patients or you have a patient that's on so many meds, how time consuming that is going right. to be. It's not just mixing one. It's all, you know. And then the next thing you know, it's, it's, it's at first, it's only during night shift. Then it's, oh, well, it's exactly. during day shift Slippery too. Slope. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Slippery slope. Yep. If wow. you agree to it, then they're going to keep doing it. It's not going to be just for a month. They always say that it's temporary. We're going to trial this, you know, we're just going to see how it goes. No, once you accept it, it's not going away. Yep. All right. That, that's uh, a good uh, problem for you to bring up because I'm sure it's happening to more and more nurses if you're hearing more and more about it, you know? So, yeah. Anywho, yeah. let's get back to uh, our forensic forensic nursing with uh, Nurse Leah. I wanted to ask you, yeah, Leah. I have a question. Can you take oh, us or ahead. take me through? No, I'm I'm doing a question. It's my okay. turn. You go. <laughs> Erica's Your like, turn. Erica's like, fine, whatever. 
I just wanted you to take me through a typical day. Like the start of your day to the end of your day. Are you on call? Do you show up at the hospital and wait? Or is there always patients? Like just walk me through your day. Yeah. So it's, again, you know, it's kind of random uh, when patients come in. I have like a black cloud over my head. So I get called in basically every single shift. You're the black cloud. Like in three years, I think I haven't gotten called in. Yeah, I'm the black cloud. So, but also I'm the one that, you know, my manager is like, oh, we have some nurses that need precepting. I'm going to stick them with Leah because I know she's going to get called in. <laughs> so, um, and I'm happy to teach. I love teaching. So I am, um, yeah, for my hospital, which is could be different for other hospitals. Some hospitals, they do have them in-house um, for their shift. For my hospital, we are only on call. And my position's PRN. So I believe there's about 16 of us uh, that take call. And um, it's a 12-hour call, so 7 to 7 or 7 to 7. And the social worker, anytime someone comes in and says that they were in a domestic violence strangulation or they were sexually assaulted, they screen them um, to make sure that they match the requirements to see a forensic nurse. Because not everybody sees a forensic nurse. So if they were strangled, it has to have been within um, 72 hours of the strangulation. Um, and if they were sexually assaulted, we will see patients up to seven days post-sexual uh, assault. Now, if you go over to the next county, to uh, the other hospital, they will see um, sexual assaults within five days and uh, domestic violence strangulation patients within five days. Um, and it all has to do with funding. So, okay. Um, so we'll get called in once they're medically cleared. Um, and then we have our own little room that's like kind of tucked in the back, which is of this hallway, which is nice because it's very quiet. Um, and so I go and make sure that the patients know what their reporting options are. That's kind of how I start off, um, you know, after introducing myself and, um, doing all of that. Um, so people do not know that you don't always have to talk to the police in order to have these exams done. Um, especially, and it really, again, it goes based off of funding and different state laws. And so I'm just gonna talk about Colorado because that's where I am and those are the laws that I know. So for us, um, as long as you're within those, that reporting um, a time frame of what I had just given the five or seven days, um, we can, uh, we get called in and we have three different reporting um, types here in Colorado. And the first one, I make sure they know they is a law enforcement. So that's a full investigation that's done with police. They talk to the police. They talk to a detective. Um, we also have an anonymous um, reporting style. So that's where they their name is nowhere on the kit. It's just a case number. We do the uh, evidence collection, and then the kit goes to the crime lab and it sits on a shelf. And for us, it's up to uh, two years at any time they can decide to upgrade. And then the third reporting style is a medical report. I really like that one because it means that they don't have to talk to police if they're not ready to. Um, we still collect the kit. And then we send it off to the crime lab and it gets analyzed. And 
they actually get the results back. And from there, they can decide if they want to upgrade it to another reporting um, option. But even if they don't, the results of it will go into, still goes into the CODIS system. And we've actually been able, police have been able to solve cases, the cold cases for like years um, wow. with this uh, new evidence. So it's not for nothing. Um, so from there, I make sure they know their reporting options and they're, um, you know, just because someone doesn't want to do a law enforcement report does not mean that they aren't telling the truth. Um, there's, I think, especially with sexual assault, it's one of the most violating things that any person can go through. And it's one of the most traumatic things too, just because you come in and get this um, exam done does not mean that the trauma stops there. So during this exam, I make sure that they know that any part of the exam that they don't want to do, they don't have to do. The whole point of these exams, like, sure, we do evidence collection, but that's not our initial um, priority. Our priority is that we're nurses first and foremost. And so we're there to make sure that their physical and mental well-being is being taken care of. So I make sure that they know before I do anything, I'm telling them, this is what this is for. And this is why I'm doing this. Is that okay? And it gets really repetitive, but I make sure before I touch them, before I do anything, I'm you know, following back up with them. Is this okay? Mm -hmm. And if at any point they want to stop, I'm going to stop. It's during that assault that they went through, their power and control was taken away from them. And so the big part of this exam is to give them back power and control over their bodily autonomy. So I'm just making sure that they know that um, is a huge part of it. And then from there, they tell me um, everything that happened during their assault. And based off of what they tell me, that's going to help drive my exam because I'm, I'm thinking while they're telling me um, what happened during the assault, I'm thinking, where can I find um, semen? Where can I find saliva, skin cells? I had one patient where the guy actually accidentally cut himself and there was like a drop of blood on her mm -hmm. of his blood. So I'm thinking of anywhere I can find um, physical DNA evidence. Um, and that's the purpose of us asking them to repeat what happened. Now, for anybody else um, out there, I want to make sure that they know this. Um, asking somebody to tell them what happened, like if someone says, I was sexually assaulted, and you go, what happened? That's not always the best thing for that person. Um, having to retell that their experience over and over and over again can be very triggering and traumatizing. So, and it, for you as like a layman person or like, you know, like a family member or friend or someone in that person's life, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter the, the actual, um, uh, things that were done to them, just knowing that this happened to them and that you can say, I believe you can mean all the difference to them. Um, so finally, after we do, we do all of the photos, I kind of look them, give them a head to toe and seeing any, if I can find any bruises or abrasions that weren't there, we take the photo. I think you've seen in the movies that has like the ruler and mm -hmm. um, you hold it up to the bruise. Um, so I 
take all of those photos. We do all of the swabs um, for DNA collection. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, I personally like to talk to them about, especially um, like post-trauma and, you know, even if they're feeling okay at the time that it's okay to not be okay. Right. And make sure that they have post-trauma resources because again, the trauma doesn't end just because they've come in and had this exam done. This is something that can stay with people for the rest of their lives. Um, and so making sure that they have um, people to contact that are trained in this like advocacy groups where they can um, get you know, follow up therapy or group therapy, um, you know, either or. And if they need further help, like if they do have case managers at a lot of these advocacy groups, um, centers uh, that can help them so that they don't end up, um, you know, like I always feel like people can go one of two ways. They can either take this terrible experience and grow from it, or sometimes the trauma is just too much to bear. And now you see a lot of people that go into drugs and alcohol and um, self-isolation and um, really like, you know, kind of it, it damages their entire life. Right. So when I'm talking to them, I'm making sure that they know that I, you know, I acknowledge what happened to them. And it's not so much, I'm so sorry this happened to you because it didn't just happen. Somebody did this to them. So making sure you're placing blame on that person that did this. And there's a oh, lot of already self-blame. That's really valuable. Um, with it. It totally, um, making sure that you let them know that this was not their fault and that somebody believes them and that you believe them, you know, it's in this whole system again, with our, with people blaming, shaming, and not believing sometimes you as the, as the nurse, you're going to be the only person that says, I believe you. And, and in the United States, especially for sexual assault, there's only about a 2% conviction rate for those that actually do go to court. And so that's infuriating. And even then, if, even if there is a conviction, it doesn't take away from what was done to them. Right. So making sure that you're actually acknowledging what was done to them and, and letting them know too, that this person that did this to them took away a lot they took away their power and control. They took away a lot from them. And we're not going to let them take any more away from them. So we do collect clothing as well. But if that person doesn't want to give up that piece of clothing, I'm not going to make them because a lot of times they're not going to get it back. Right. And so just because you want to make sure that just because something terrible happened in that outfit. Maybe it was their favorite outfit. I go, you know what? This doesn't have to stop being your favorite outfit. You don't let them, you don't let them take any more away from you. This like can that. still be your favorite sweater to wear, you know, in, or if they had gone out, you know, this happened after going out to the bar or something and you don't have to not go out anymore. You know, you don't let them right. take any more away from you. And that's going to be your revenge on them is to make sure that they don't 
um, they don't ruin your life. They don't take any more away from your life. So making sure that you're really talking to them about that and, um, and giving them those post-trauma resources. And then on top of that, depending on the time frame that they came in, we can give them prophylactic medications for STDs. Um, we cover right. for trichomonas, gonorrhea, yeah, that's, and chlamydia. That's important. Yeah. Um, if it's within 72 of Mm -hmm. If it's within 72 hours, we can cover with NPEP, which is an HIV prevention um, medication. It's like a 28-day medication. And then also with like a plan B for um, if it's within five days. We actually use Ella, which is more effective than plan B. Um, it's a little bit more expensive, but uh, it doesn't really matter where you are in your cycle um, as much. Uh, it covers weight um, better. Uh, than plan B. Okay. And um, it's just overall a, a much better uh, pregnancy prevention. And then after that medical follow-up, because we know medications are great, but they're not always a hundred percent. So right. we do set right. them up with an, a free appointment with our sexual health clinic so they can get STD um, treated or sorry, STD um, tested yeah. uh, within uh, statistically an STD won't show up on a test for up to two to three weeks after exposure. So that's why we typically don't um, test right away when we just prophylactically treat. Um, and then in two to three weeks, they can go in and be fully tested. So that's kind of the full extent of what I do. And it can take, you know, people think they come in and they'll just get it done and Honestly, you could be there for hours, um, especially because there's only one one forensic nurse typically. So if I have, I've gone in where I've been called in and they're like, you have three patients waiting. Now, if it, it can take me anywhere from, you know, three to four hours uh, with a patient. So imagine the person that came in and they're like the third person waiting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at most I've been able to get like four or five cases done in a 12 hour shift, but they're waiting there. So especially, um, for our ER nurses, because that's typically where they're going to come in to get these, making sure that they are eating and they are drinking and they are using the bathroom. That's totally fine. Um, you know, we don't want to ever put evidence above somebody's comfort. And even then, like, we do these exams up to seven days at my hospital post-assault. And in that time, people have been eating, drinking, using the bathroom, sure. showering, and we can still potentially find DNA. DNA is actually extremely resilient. And the testing has gotten so much better since the 90s. So even for like skin, um, like touch DNA, I think you only need like eight to 10 skin cells to get a, a match. Oh, wow. So it's pretty important, you know, we want to make sure our patients are comfortable and, um, and yeah, so if they're, they're hungry, get them something to eat. That's totally fine. They don't have to hold their pee. <laughs> yeah. So, and also they don't have to bring in their pee. We actually will just throw that away. That's a myth okay. um, because a defense lawyer will just say, we don't know whose urine that is. That's true. We didn't yeah. see anyone collecting. We don't know if anything was added to it. Right. So you don't have to pee in a cup and bring it with you. Okay. Um, that's a, that's a false, um, that's a myth. Uh, what would you suggest for any nurses that are looking to get into sane nursing? Are there some resources you can point them towards? Yeah. 
Absolutely. I would 100% make sure you have a therapist first. Um, (laughs) Yeah, um, that makes sense. And it's mostly because you do hear, yeah, you do hear a lot of very traumatic things. Like, um, I know we do, like I said, we, we see and hear a lot of traumatic things in healthcare, but sometimes you're, it's just appalling how um, one human being can do this do certain things to another human being on purpose like fully knowing what they're doing it's it's just it's horrible and you don't want to trauma dump on your friends and family um and you also want to make sure that you're in that mindset that you're ready to not um take on that trauma as your own so a lot of people who go into this field they want to do it because maybe they experienced something um you know it was a sexual assault or domestic violence in their past and they want to be able to be that person um to help um but you need to recognize that this is not your trauma to bear um you know i i think in in almost three years i've done almost 150 cases and I think I've cried after three of them um, that were just like so heinous that I was just like, oh my gosh, this is this is insane. Like, um, so just making sure that you're you're mentally ready um, to be in it because it is a big turnover um, position. Good advice. And then um, finding, yeah, finding a um, a what's it called? a program and you can find those i mean literally just google googling some states have government funded um programs if you're in colorado the colorado sane safe program is completely free to any rn um and uh and it's all online self-paced i loved it it was great um and you get 64 free ceus at the end so like, nice. who doesn't love that yeah um and then also, they have uh, making sure that you can also find a uh, what's it called, like a, a clinical afterwards too, mm-hmm. because it it needs to be paired. Um, so honestly, if you are looking to get into sane, I would reach out to the manager, the sane manager, and actually ask them, like, do they know okay. any programs? They're going to know the best of where you can go. Um, also, the Academy of Forensic Nursing is a really great uh, resource as well. Okay. Um, I think, yeah. And also just making sure because requirements are going to be different where you are. Like some some require you to have been a nurse for three to five years. Um, some places you have to have been an ER nurse or an ICU nurse some or an L&D nurse. It's just, it's so different. So making sure that you're actually reaching out to the hiring the manager where you want to work and be like, what are the requirements? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because for me, I was never an ER or ICU or L&D nurse. I was an operating room nurse, um, right. you know, and, and we'll take nurses that have one year experience as opposed to somewhere else where you have to have three years. It just, you okay. know, it's, it's location-based. In case people want more information and want to see, you know, different videos and the advocacy things that you do. It's at Off the Clock Nurse, right? Yes, absolutely. And I'm also working on a program um, to help, help, um, it's for hospital workers and school-based workers, staff, like teachers and um, 
uh, school social workers, school nurses on uh, human sex trafficking, um, especially within our pediatric population. It's oh, called Walking Wise, um, and it's we're hoping to have it out. You can you can check it out at walkingwise.com, and we're hoping to have it up and ready to go maybe by early 2024 um we're still putting some modules together but um it's something even uh individuals can purchase as well um and go through and it's it's a way to have to allow adults um teach adults on how to have these conversations with kids because we that's important. can't always protect our kids right we live yeah. in a dangerous right. we do live in a dangerous world in a dangerous country and um the best way to protect our kids or protect ourselves is to be um educated on the signs what is right what is wrong who can Absolutely. i go talk to who's trustworthy um and so that's kind of what that's about if anybody's interested okay. in that Thank you. And I, I don't want to let you go without asking about a new adventure that you have coming up. You're you're going to be diving into podcasting yourself, aren't you? I you want to tell us I about that. Made the top ten for uh, the Nurse.org new podcast series. It's called Nurses Con Nurse Converse. Congratulations! Um, so I just actually. Um, Yay! Congratulations! That's awesome. I um. Thank you. I just recorded my first episode that it is going to come out, uh, I believe, January 9th, I think. Um, but it's uh, January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. And so I dedicated it all to human trafficking, um, human sex trafficking. So that's what I'll be talking about in that podcast. And yeah, I think. Um, Where can people I think find it's really that? Important. Like Nurse.org? Yeah, on nurse.org, it'll be uploaded to their website, and then I'll also okay. share it to mine as well. All right. Thank you so, so much, I Leah, for coming on. With a, we didn't yeah. do our enema. We can't. What's our enema award? You're in charge of this why one. Why do what I always it? have to say, why do I always got to break in and do the enema and the problem every Cause, time? Because I get I'm, so I'm into a... it, I, I forget. <laughs> it's true. It is true. Okay, the enema of the week goes to the um, upper management at York Memorial Hospital, where uh, many nurses in med surge are being asked to take um, eight, eight to one, so eight patients to one nurse. Um, but not only are they telling them that this is what their assignment is going to be, but they're telling them that they can't refuse the assignment. Um, and that it's, you know, the whole guilt trip of its patient abandonment if you yeah. try to refuse and gaslighting and all that that hoopla. Um, so this is to the management there that um, thinks that they can get away with it and thinks that it's okay to keep putting more patients onto, onto nurses. Um, they get the big, juicy, extra double strength enema of the week. <laughs> So, and they deserve yeah, it. Definitely, they deserve it for that. Uh, I believe that was UPMC York Memorial. If I'm yes. remembering, yep. allegedly, Hospital, allegedly U UP in Pennsylvania. Uh, yes, allegedly, because yes. Um, and then I thought, what uh, I found this video actually on. There's this lady called the Nurse Erica. I don't know. So I found that video <laughs> on her page, and um, she had some interesting advice. And the advice was. Don't be scared to refuse the assignment because once you accept it, then that 
that, you know, if you get in trouble or you end up harming a patient or whatnot, they're going to ask you, why did you accept the assignment? If it wasn't safe, you felt like you couldn't handle it. Why did you accept yeah. it? So remember that. Um, exactly. I don't know who that nurse Erica lady is, but it sounded mm. like some good advice. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, well, anyway, Leah, thank, thank you, you so Leah, much for, for joining on. us. Yeah. This was a really valuable, I learned important so much. episode. Honestly, I did too. I feel like I just had a nursing CEU. Like I, I, I know. Like can I, you, can I you send us so a CEU? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, I didn't, I didn't know half that stuff. So thank you so much. Um, good luck on the podcast and, um, thank you so much. Follow you guys, Leah at, um, off, off the, the clock, clock nurse. nurse on TikTok, Instagram. Well, thank you, Leah. Thank you for coming on and for educating all of us. This is so important. Oh, 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 oh,